Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking soju. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking an apple teeny, and on today's episode, we're discussing one of the worst accidents in South Korea's history, the sinking of the Sewol Ferry. Before we get started, I wanted to share some nautical terminology that will help everyone visualize and better understand what happened to the Sewol. So starboard is the right side of the boat, port is left, the hull is a portion of the boat that rides in and on top of the water, the bow is the front, and the stern is the back of the ship. We also wanted to note that Dell and I are not fluent speakers of the Korean language, but we will do our best to pronounce everything correctly in this episode. With that in mind, let's get into this tragic story. On the evening of April 15, 2014, 476 passengers boarded the MV Sewol ferry boat in the South Korean city of Incheon for a 425-kilometer and 13-and-a-half-hour voyage to Jeju Island. The Sewol was originally scheduled to leave port at 6.30 p.m., but was delayed until 9 or 9.30 p.m. due to fog and low visibility. It was the only ship to leave the Incheon port that evening. Of the 476 passengers on board, 325 were students from the Danwon High School from the Danwon District of Ansan, South Korea. The Sewol also carried 33 crew members led by Captain Lee jun Seok and 2,142.7 tons of cargo. Many of the crew working this trip were not the ship's typical crew, including Captain Lee. When the Sewol left port that evening, it weighed a total of 6,825 tons. For some background, the Sewol was an 18-year-old ship that was purchased in 2012 by the Chong Hee Jin Marine Company, a Japanese company that also used it as a cargo and passenger transport ship. The ferry had five floors and a variety of restaurants and entertainment facilities. After its purchase, the quote-unquote dilapidated ship underwent a number of modifications that were later found to have been based on an illegal redesign. The ferry began operating to the public in March 2013 and made three round trips from Incheon to Jeju Island every week. On the morning of April 16, 2014, third mate Park Han Kyo and helmsman Cho Jun Ki took over steering controls from the previous team. As the ferry neared the Mangol Channel around 8.20 a.m., Park ordered Cho to switch the steering from autopilot to manual. At 8.46 a.m., Park requested Cho to change the course of the ship from 135 degrees to 140 degrees, and Cho complied. What happened next is unclear, but according to Park's later testimony, she had used the radar to check that Sewol's course was changed and the current course was set to 140 degrees. She ordered Cho to change the course of the ship further to 145 degrees at 8.48 a.m. After realizing that the ship was heavily listing or tilting starboard, which led the bow to turn to the right, she gave an order to turn the wheel to port. Immediately following this command, Cho told her, quote-unquote, the wheel isn't working, in a flustered voice, after which the ship started listing more. According to Cho, the Sewol kept turning towards the right even as he was holding onto the wheel. He made two turns to the left, amounting to a five-degree turn. Because the ship did not stop its rightward turning, it was eventually facing a 145-degree course. 
Cho testified that Park gave an order to turn in quote-unquote the opposite direction at this point, which he followed by turning the ship further to the left by 10 degrees. So the total amount of the turn became 15 degrees to the left. Passengers recalled hearing a loud bang before feeling the ship shudder and begin to tilt. It capsized and began sinking at this time. It was later reported that Captain Lee, who was not on the ship's bridge at the time, ran back to the bridge and tried to correct the ferry's direction, but he was not able to take control. At 8.52 a.m., high schooler Troy Duck Howe called the South Korean National Emergency Number and briefly spoke with a nearby fire station and the Mokbo Coast Guard, saying that the ship had capsized. They asked him to provide the location of the ship, but Troy did not have that information. The Coast Guard launched patrol vessel number 123 shortly before 9 a.m. Following the Coast Guard search and rescue manual, the boat was to be in charge of surveying the area and quote-unquote swiftly rescuing passengers. At 8.55 a.m., the crew made their first distress call to the Jeju Vessel Traffic Service, followed just a minute later by another message saying, quote, cannot move, please come quickly, end quote. Announcements were made over an intercom system advising passengers to remain seated or in their cabins instead of evacuating to the deck and life raft. Due to the listing, it was difficult for passengers to even stand up straight. At 9.18 a.m., the ship reported that it was, quote, listing at an angle of more than 50 degrees, end quote, and that the crewmen who had been ordered to wear life vests were on the bridge of the ship. Even as the ferry was taking on water, crew members still asked passengers to remain on board the vessel. Confused students on board were sending texts to their families explaining what little they knew of the situation. At 9.23 a.m., the office of the South Korean president, Park gun Hay contacted the Coast Guard for a description of the situation. Minutes later, at 9.25, a second distress call was made saying the ship was about to sink. Jindo Vessel Traffic Service officials urged the captain to, quote, make a decision on whether to begin the evacuation procedures, end quote. According to the New Yorker, reports were later show that the captain would wait another 10 minutes to deliver the command to evacuate. By the time the evacuation order was issued, the ship was listing at too steep an angle for many people to escape the tight hallways and stairs inside. Since many passengers had life vests on, it was difficult for them to swim out of flooded cabins. Several survivors would later tell the Associated Press that they never heard any evacuation orders, a claim that was backed by some surviving crew members. The first Coast Guard rescue boats arrived around 9.30 a.m. after being notified by authorities shortly after 9 a.m. Patrol Boat 123 arrived at 9.35 a.m. and was the only rescue boat on scene that maintained communication with the Ghost Guard headquarters. The boat was tasked with surveying the accident and performing a swift rescue effort according to the Coast Guard Search and Rescue Manual. They reported that no one was on the ferry's deck and no one had jumped into the water. Around 10 minutes later, Patrol Boat 123 rescued Captain Lee. He was one of the first people rescued from the ship despite more than half of the passengers still sheltering in place on board. 
no rescue teams were able to get on board and search the upper decks where a majority of passengers were. Patrol boat 123 reportedly only approached the Seawall once and waited to approach again until after the ferry sank. The Seawall's final communication to emergency teams came at 9.38 a.m. when they shared that the ferry was listing at 60 degrees and that passengers were attempting to evacuate through the port side. Just before 10 a.m., the first rescue helicopter arrived and made its first rescue. Small commercial boats and fishing ships also assisted in the rescue, but were ordered to retreat. Though some official rescue boats and helicopters were on the scene, the government agencies involved did not order that rescue efforts be intensified. Instead, they made requests for a camera to be sent in for an internal investigation. Survivor Kim Sung-Mook told documentary makers that he could hear and see the rescue boats and helicopters, but they never gave any order to evacuate or any instructions about what to do. At 10.25 a.m., the president's office called the Coast Guard again and ordered them to make sure there were no casualties and to search the ferry and make sure no one was missing. Ten minutes later, air rescue services can be heard telling the West Sea Coast Guard that they should have landed on the ship and quote-unquote made a good scene by showing their agents evacuating the passengers. The West Sea Coast Guard also wrongly told them that many passengers escaped. At this time, the ship was almost completely underwater with only the bow sticking out. At 11 a.m., the first fatality of the Seawall was reported. The sinking of the Seawall and the subsequent rescue efforts were broadcast live on Korean news to a horrified audience who could do little more than pray. Around 11 a.m., one news station reported that all students on board had been rescued, which was then reported by other networks. In reality, only 172 to 174 passengers and crew members were rescued. Officers working for the educational departments for the Gyeonggi province who were wrongfully informed by police sent text messages to the Danwon High School students' parents stating that all students had been rescued. Initial reports stated that rescuers retrieved 368 people from cold waters as the passengers, mostly students, had jumped overboard when the vessel started sinking. The South Korean government later corrected this statement saying 295 passengers remained missing. New death tolls came in during the days and eventually months following the accident. The day after the Seawall wreck, the Coast Guard concluded that an, quote, unreasonably sudden turn, end quote, to starboard caused the cargo to shift to port, which in turn caused the ship to list and to eventually become unmanageable for the crew. That same day, Undine Marine Industries, a private company, began the search for missing passengers. 20 divers from the Korean Coast Guard were assigned and a number of civilian divers participated as well. However, eight divers from the Republic of Korea Navy were turned away. Underwater search vessels were on the scene but never received orders from the Coast Guard. Rescue workers from the Coast Guard underwater demolition team and ship salvage unit were also there the day of the sinking, but without a barge to use as a base, they were not able to optimally perform their duties. One civilian diver remembers being told to wait to search the boat so the Coast Guard could pump air in because the president was watching. They hoped the pumped air would support potential air pockets where survivors may have been waiting. He also claimed that they did not actually place the air hose in the ship and instead just placed it in the water and pretended it was attached, again because the president was watching. Civilian divers also claimed that the Undine Company took credit for their rescues. Rescue efforts were halted in the afternoon due to bad weather. 
On April 18th, the Seawall was completely underwater. Divers entered the ship's hull but only gained access to the cargo deck. No air pockets or survivors were found. Searching the sunken ship was extremely difficult for divers due to dark, murky water, the ship's confusing layout, collapsed furniture blocking their path, and having to physically break down windows and doors to pull out victims. No government divers were skilled enough to reach the depths of the ship, so civilian divers took charge. Divers found many victims huddled together in small rooms. In July, the government asked the civilian divers to stop their search efforts. In the following months, at least seven rescuers died during their search efforts, including five officers that perished in a helicopter crash. After seven months, the search for the missing passengers was called off. The Sewa accident left the nation devastated and outraged. They felt as though many lives could have been saved if the government and ferry crew had taken proper action and if Zhang Hee-jin had maintained the ship properly. The public was particularly angered by the Coast Guard's slow response, the captain and crew being some of the first rescued from the ferry, and the government not having, quote, an accurate tally of missing passengers, end quote. People were particularly upset with President Park for taking several hours to comment on the accident. Her response to the Seawall would cause her approval ratings to drop. Candlelight protests were held and nationwide support poured in for the Seawall's victims' families. Yellow ribbons would eventually be a symbol for the Seawall victims. On April 27, 2014, Prime Minister Zhang Hong Wan accepted responsibility for the disaster and announced his resignation. Not long after that, President Park indirectly apologized for the government's response to the sinking. On April 19th, Captain Lee was arrested for negligence of duty. Prosecutors initially sought the death penalty. He would go on to say that he delayed evacuation announcements because he thought that if passengers left the ship without life jackets, they would have had a difficult time in the cold and dangerous water and that his intentions were never to kill anyone. Sho and Park were also arrested on suspicion of negligence and manslaughter. On May 8th, the chief executive at Junghee Jin, Kim Han Sik, was arrested and faced charges including causing death by negligence and overloading the cargo. He was later found guilty and sentenced to 10 years in prison, and his sentence was later reduced to seven years. Several other company officials were also taken into custody. Yu Byung Un, the former chairman of Zhang Hee Jin, went into hiding following a court summons. A warrant for his arrest was issued, and in July 2014, his body was discovered, but his cause of death was never determined to due to advanced decomposition. The Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries revoked Zhang Hee-jin Company's license to operate ferries in the Ixian Jeju Island Route in May 2014. Two ship inspectors were also arrested. In November of the same year, Captain Lee was sentenced to 36 years in prison. In 2015, he was found guilty of murder and his sentence was increased to life in prison. 13 other crew members were also given time in jail. There were numerous investigations into what caused the Seawall disaster. According to the Criminal Department of the Supreme Prosecutor's Office, quote, the ship changed to an immature steer while the ship's stability was deteriorated due to excessive weight gain and overwork and the cargo that was not secure properly lost its stability as it was pulled to one side. It sank. 
End quote. Since the Seiwa ferry was imported from Japan in 2012, the weight of the ferry was increased by 239 tons due to repairs and extensions, including the addition of two entirely new passenger decks, and there was also a left-right imbalance. In addition, on the day of the accident, there was an overload of 2,142 tons that was twice twice the maximum cargo load of 1,077 tons. And the ballast water required to restore the hull was only 580 tons instead of the recommended 2,030 tons. It was reported that the crew pumped ballast water out in order to load more cargo onto the ship. The negligence of the ship's operation was added in a state in which the stability was seriously deteriorated due to poorly fastened vehicles and containers. The lack of ballast water and extra cargo meant that the center of gravity on the say wall was too high for safe operation, and the amount of force needed to capsize the ship was reduced to a dangerously low level. The prosecutor's office came to their conclusion after working with many experts, researchers from Seoul's National University and using simulation analysis. Evidence of other issues also came to light during the investigations. The ferry's license was provided based on falsified documents. The ship's ballast tanks were not properly maintained and had not been adjusted after the ferry's last trip. The Seiwal's usual captain, Captain Shin, had reportedly warned the ferry's owner about the decrease in stability and attributed it to the removal of the ship's side ramp, later claiming that the company threatened to fire him if he continued his objections. Shin's warnings were also relayed through an official working for the Incheon Port Authority on April 9, 2014, which an official from Chonghee Jin responded to by stating that he would deal with anyone making the claims. Shin had also requested a repair for the malfunctioning steering gear on April 1, 2014, but that was not done. Earlier that year, a stability test showed that the Seiwal had become, quote, too heavy and less stable after modifications were made, end quote. Though cargo limits were placed on the ship after its redesign, the Korean Shipping Association and the Coast Guard were not notified of these reductions. In the years following the disaster, tensions grew as many called for President Park's impeachment, while others supported her. In November 2016, a report about the Seiwal incident meant for President Park was released to the public. This report, which referred to the Seiwal sinking as a quote-unquote ferry accident, focused mainly on controlling protest in reaction to the Seiwal by opposing political parties and controlling public opinion of the protests. It included no information on investigating the sinking, salvaging the hull, or supporting the victims' families. After being caught in a corruption scandal, President Park was impeached by the National Assembly in December 2016. A vote in March 2017 by the Constitutional Court up held the impeachment and ended Park's presidency. Following the election of a new president, Moon J.N., it was revealed that Park had blacklisted artists from receiving government acknowledgement or sponsorship with the purpose of censoring those who memorialized the Seawall victims in their artwork. An investigation in October of 2017 showed that during the beginning of the Seawall rescue operation, President Park was getting her hair done before attending an emergency meeting eight hours after the ship had sunk. Several members of her administration were prosecuted and imprisoned for their 
their roles in developing the artist's blacklist and falsifying Park's whereabouts on the morning of the accident. Park was sentenced to 24 years in prison in 2018. Nearly three years after the accident, in March of 2017, the salvage operation to raise the sunken seawall began. The ship was lying on its port side, nearly 40 meters below the surface. Following the ship's removal, four bodies were recovered. Partial remains of other passengers who were identified through DNA testing were also found. Both the Saywall's victims' families and the public felt this salvage mission had come years too late and did not understand why the ship couldn't have been lifted sooner. They had protested and fought from the beginning to get the ship raised. The sinking of the Saywall caused the country to reflect on whether or not they were risking safety in the name of progress. It also caused many to question the enforcement of regulations within the shipping industry. In total, 304 passengers, including 250 students and 11 teachers from the Dan Juan High School, died on the Saywall awaiting rescue and instruction from the crew. The Dan Juan Junior class lost three quarters of its students. Five people still remain missing. They are Nam Hyun Chol, 16, Park Young In, 16, Teacher Yang Sung Jin, 57, and the father and son passengers Kwan Jae Gyun, 48, and Kwan Hyuk Gyu, 6. Though many crew members escaped through employee-only areas, survivors shared the names of three remaining staff who helped passengers evacuate. They are Park Ji Young, a 22-year-old part-time ferry employee, 28-year-old crew member Kim Ki-wung, and his 27-year-old fiancé Jung Hyun-sun, who also worked aboard the ferry. Several survivors and rescue divers have since died by suicide, stating the guilt and trauma was too much to bear. The victims' families were credited with bringing their country together and encouraging change. The Saywall families fought tooth and nail to get answers about what happened to their loved ones, and they are still fighting for transparency. Del, what are your thoughts on the rescue efforts of the Saywall passengers? And had you heard about this when this initially happened? Yes, I do remember this when it initially happened. And I think that this is one of the most clear cut examples of what not to do when it comes to rescue efforts. I think that it is absolutely disgusting that the crew members decided that their lives were more important than other people. It actually reminds me a lot of the station nightclub fire that we covered before, where you had a situation where crew-only exits were being used, but those weren't open to the passengers. And then in this case, you also have the fact that there was such a delay at every stage. You have the fact that the captain wasn't immediately brought back to the control deck when it was discovered that the ship was getting off course. You have the fact that the passengers weren't told when to evacuate, weren't told where to go for evacuation efforts. And then you had the government not doing enough to make sure that they had the personnel to handle something like this. And then they were also cutting people off that wanted to help that had those skills as well. I feel like this should have been a complete mobilization effort to make sure that as many people were rescued as possible. And that did not happen. I think that when it comes to rescue efforts, communication is the number one thing you need to make sure that it's maintained and this did not happen. I am happy to see that a lot of people were put in jail. 
I don't know if this has been the learning lesson that it should be, but I do hope that they have looked at this accident and looked at the negligence that happened in the rescue efforts to make sure that this never happens again. What do you think? It's so shocking and infuriating to see how this situation was handled. I think on one level, it's like the definition of people over profits. Like the usual captain of the ship told everyone like, hey, this stuff is not working. We need to look at something. And the company just doesn't care. And they threatened to fire him. They were very secretive with what they did. They had a legal redesign of the ship, which allowed them to have more weight on there, which put everything in danger. And though we mention a lot of different reasons for why the ship likely did sink and tilt that day, there isn't like a definitive answer, I guess. So that is why people are still um, fighting for transparency. And it's shocking to see how the Coast Guard reacted as well. I will say people were mad at them for rescuing the captain. I mean, the captain jumped out he didn't have like you know like a full captain suit on they didn't know who they were rescuing but they did a lot of stuff wrong they were so slow to respond to anything why weren't they up there patrol boat one two three had like a megaphone system on there why weren't they talking to people to get out it's not like the ship sank in like 10 minutes it took a long time people were in there for a long time who could have been saved and i know the captain had said like oh i thought it would be too dangerous in the water but if they had life vests on and they just jumped out you know wouldn't they be okay it would be easier to get a better idea of how many people were out there there was so much miscommunication in this whole thing and it's shocking to see the level of like obstruction in this investigation too i'm not surprised that the ship wasn't salvaged until right when president park was impeached in their report there was no mention of trying to salvage the ship but what's the point of not salvaging it if there were people still on there they're not survivors but it would mean so much to these family members to have their loved ones remains back their belongings back it makes no sense it really is like a failure at every single level going back to the captain he clearly knew he was in danger if he went out of his way to escape apparently the captain goes down with the ship is not maritime law it's just maritime tradition which i didn't know there's a different view on that between the east and the west if people had just done what they were supposed to do all of these rescuers wouldn't have had to die and face the trauma that they live with now if these kids and these other passengers had been saved. It's truly appalling. It was, I would say, one of the most frustrating things to research because at every single angle, someone was not doing what their duty was. As we said, the Seawall disaster created controversy and traumatized the country. But one of the positive things to come from the tragedy is that it caused many young South Koreans to become politically engaged. They're known as the Seawall generation and are a younger generation of South Koreans that want to create change within their country's government. Many were teenagers themselves when the Seawall sank and saw how no one was able to protect their peers. These teenagers felt scared and thought it could have easily easily been them that died on the Seawall. It wasn't just some fairy accident to them. The Seawall generation were vital in the demonstrations and protests that helped to impeach President Park. It was young people that helped clear out government corruption. Now these teenagers are young politicians that are hoping to pave the way for a new and more transparent government. 
The Sewol tragedy also forced some South Korean people to reflect on their society's foundations. Both South Korean society and its education system are rooted in respect for authority. Obedience and hierarchy are very important. Many felt this obedience caused the deaths of the teenagers on board. And that may be a little bit of a controversial take, but I would agree that it did play a little bit of a role for the things that we're about to say. And we're by no means victim blaming. There are some elements that make you wonder the teenagers on board had a little more independence if more of them would have thought to just evacuate themselves. Children in South Korea are considered a family's treasure and an obedient child is especially prized. But I think most children are taught to follow rules, listen to adults, and do as they are told. They're supposed to be passive and obey orders. This sometimes causes children and teenagers to not have much independent thought or decision-making skills. Many wondered if more people, especially the teenagers on the Sewol, would have survived if they had not automatically been told to stay in their cabins. Survivor Jang A. Jin told France 24 that though the water was up to her knees, she had been ordered not to move and did not think of trying to get out. Eventually, the area she and her friends were in collapsed and they were forced to escape. During the criminal hearings following the disaster, one surviving student said that she had considered trying to escape once the ferry began listing, but did not because she heard the announcement asking passengers to stay put. According to CNN, survivors say the passengers who listened to that order to remain in their cabins were the ones who never made it off the ship. People overwhelmingly listened even when they knew they were in danger. Because of the Sewol, it's now mandatory in South Korea for primary school students to take a safety course and school trips are required to be done in smaller groups. There is an education center in Anson that has belongings from the teenage victims as well as desks from their high school. The center is run by one of the victim's fathers, Jong Myung Sun. He hopes that the education center can act as a place of remembrance but also encourage critical thinking in children. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the handling of the Saywall disaster. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on movie set disasters that caused the deaths of actors and crew members. As always, stay safe.